Amen. Well, it's a joy to be able to preach this morning. Uh, Pastor Steve's on vacation, as you can tell. He made it all the way to the third pew. And, uh, and so I look forward to being able to preach. This has been an unusually hard message for me to pull together. But it's a joy to see how the Lord has worked because what you wouldn't know but that I can't stop thinking about is how the songs lead us up so well to what we're going to be preaching on today, what we're going to be studying today. Um, the uh, who can, all of the questions from, from that, who can do anything compared to the Lord? And uh, we're going to be looking a little bit at the life of Peter, some of the other disciples, and their answer before Christ's death and the resurrection would have probably been, oh, I can. They couldn't. Um, and, and this gives us an opportunity to praise the Lord for what he enables us to do in his strength. And uh, so we get a good opportunity to worship God today as we focus on uh, the difference between self-confidence and the Holy Spirit's enablement. Um, In that vein, I want to talk to you about a player. And uh, kids, you can be dismissed. Thank you. It's a good thing we put that slide in there. Um, As uh, as we get started, I want to talk to you about a, a player in the Rose Bowl. Uh, and, and I want to see, does anybody know the most famous player or famous play by a center in the Rose Bowl? All right, that's kind of a specific question. We're looking for a really specific answer, and it goes back all the way to 1929. Does that give anybody a hint? doesn't give me a hint at all either, except for that I saw the video, and, uh, and this video will help explain to you what I'm thinking of. Have any sound from the computer? Can you pause that? So that was back in 2014, it was the 100th anniversary of the Rose Bowl, but like 90 years later, after that 1929 game, we are still remembering Wrong Way Roy Regals. Anybody ever heard that story, at least of him running the wrong way? Um, 65 yards. Now that was an incredible play for a center. They just don't make centers like that anymore, right? He almost outran his running back. And as he's running down the field, his teammate, Benny Lom, the running back, the star of the Cal football team, is saying, Stop! You're running the wrong way! And in an interview later on, Roy Regal said, I thought he was totally off his rocker. All right, so, was Roy Regal's a good player? Well, he was a starter, a starting center on the Cal football team. So, yeah, he was a good player. And his coach said he was one of the most intelligent and gifted players I ever had the privilege of coaching. The following year, he actually became the captain of the football team, so he was a good player, okay? Was he self-confident? He's running 65 yards down the field the wrong direction. The guy's yelling at him, you're going the wrong way, and he's like, you're off your rocker. Was he confident? Yeah, he's confident. Key question, was he right? No. And there's a big difference between self-confidence and being right. And as we, um, as we take that lesson to heart uh, and, and turn to uh, Matthew 16, we're going to be talking about Peter, who was a very self-confident young man. Um, we're going to be focusing on how the Holy Spirit changes everything. And I realized I got this, so I can use this from here. Um, as We're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit changes everything. And in order to do that, we need to look at Peter's life before the Holy Spirit arrived, and then look at Peter and the other disciples after the Holy Spirit arrived. Because we're going to see a marked difference in how they do ministry and what the results were of their ministry. Um, I don't want us to be critical of Peter. And really, this sermon is about the Holy Spirit, not about Peter or the other disciples. Uh, But 
we've got a lot to learn. And frankly, our lives, when we try to do ministry for God in our own strength or try to come to God in our own power, our lives mirror Peter's. And we, in all of our self-confidence, can blow it time and time again and in a variety of different ways. And so I want us to learn from his mistakes and then by the end of the time today, be convinced and, and compelled to seek the Spirit's lead and the Spirit's filling and the Spirit's enabling so that we can do what it is that God's called us to do. So that's our goal today. All right? Would you bow with me? Because we need to go to the Lord in prayer and, and just focus on that as we begin. Father, thank you so much for your understanding uh, that you give in response to us reading and faithfully studying your word. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see glorious truth out of your word today. And I pray, God, that you would bring us conviction of sin where we have been or still are being self-sufficient in ministry and in work for you. And I pray, God, that you would bring us a new sense of appreciation for your power, for your ability, a new sense of our own inadequacy, but as well a compelling desire to serve you and to do what we can to honor you and to glorify you, not in our own strength, but in yours. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, before we dump, jump into Matthew 16, a real quick show of hands. How many of you would say, just as a general broad brush stroke, I'm a fairly confident person? Raise your hand high. If you've got sweaty armpits, it really doesn't matter, right? Because you're confident. Okay, how many of you would say by a show of hands, I'm not generally a confident person? Raise your hand high. If you're looking around to see if anybody else is raising, your ha raising their hand, this is the right category for you, okay? Um, Self-confidence is one of those things that, as I said, Peter was full of, and some of us are as well, and probably when we think about our lives, there are areas where we would say, I'm really confident, and I'm good at that, praise God, All right? And then there's other areas of our life where we'd say, I pretty much am terrible at that, or I'm okay, but I'm not great. Okay, and that's okay. There's different areas of life and, and strength. But when we seek to serve God, He does not want us to do so in the power of our name. When we seek to serve God in our own strength and with great self-confidence, we end up doing ministry like Peter. And I want us to take a variety of snapshots from the last few days of Jesus' ministry on earth to see how, G how Peter and the other disciples did ministry and what the results were. So we're going to start off in Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now I want to pause for a second and just explain from that time, because that means there was a time before that we're not quite aware of because we haven't read the context. That time is the paragraph right before where Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Woohoo! Peter gets it right. He understands Jesus' identity. And from that time, Jesus begins to say, now that they understand his identity, I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be crucified. I am going to rise again. And Peter, verse 22, in all of his confidence, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, meaning Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Have any of you ever gotten the look from your mom? You know what I mean by the look? Right? It's the, it's the look that says, Here's the line, buddy, and there's you. You've just crossed it. All right? And she gives you that look, and it like pierces through your skin, into your conscience, and it begins to smolder, and it warns you that if you don't step back, you will soon burst into flames. That's the look. When Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, I kind of wonder if Peter got the look. 
Because earlier he had just said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. And now he thinks it's a good idea to rebuke Jesus? You step back, young man. It's kind of the look. When we try to do ministry in our own strength, it hinders our service to God because, first of all, we misunderstand God. Peter gets associated with Satan. And that's a sobering comment that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Get behind me, not Simon, not get behind me, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. And why is he associated with Satan? It's because of what we read at the end of verse 23. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, I know you don't want me to die, but you have no right to tell me that's not what's going to happen. You have become an idol worshiper, Peter. You have become just like Satan. You have become a rebel because you've set your mind on what you want. And when we go into ministry trying to serve God so that we can get what we want and things can be the way we want, we hinder the work of God. Another thing that happens is if you flip forward 10 chapters to Matthew 26, you start to see that we end up making, like the disciples, like Peter, arrogant promises to God. We make arrogant promises. Now, they had just had the last, uh, sorry, um, verse 30. This is um, Jesus saying in verse 30, Matthew 26, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away from of me, all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, and keep that in mind, that's very important. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What are the promises Peter makes? Well, the first one's here, verse thirty three. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus says to him, Truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. There's three arrogant promises Peter makes when he tries to follow God in his own strength. The first is, Oh, I'll die with you. The second is, I won't deny you. And, and the third um, is uh, I will not run away. I won't be scattered. As if he knew better than the prophecies of the Word of God that Jesus had just told him. It is written. And so we make these arrogant promises that are in contra on contradiction to the Word of God. The Word of God told him he would be weak. And Jesus had very specifically reminded him of that prophecy. And he ends up making a fool out of himself later on, doesn't he? Because he tried to do ministry in his own strength. And I would just say, throw out a caution for us, because we can do the same thing when we get in the groove and we're singing a song we really love. And in the song, there are these rash and arrogant promises that depend all on us and our strength. I'll stand for you forever, God. Oh, I will love you forever. And I just want to encourage a caution at these kinds of things because like Peter, when we make those promises, we often end up regretting later on that we've made them. And it would be better, as the Word of God teaches, not to make the promise, but simply seek every day to follow God and to love Him and to live for Him one day at a time. Let's not misunderstand God. Let's not make arrogant promises, and certainly let's not become prayerless, which is the very next mistake that the disciples, especially Peter, makes. Now, I'll summarize here for the sake of time. Jesus takes the disciples after the, uh, the Last Supper out to the garden, and, uh, and he sets the eight disciples, because remember, Judas had gone. He sets eight disciples over here, and he says, you guys wait here, and then he takes Peter, James, and John to a different spot, and he says, I need you guys, basically for moral support, okay? I need you with me. I want you to stay alert. You will encourage me if you stay awake 
and you keep alert and watchful with me. So his three closest disciples, he gives them this task. And then he goes away, a stone's throw away, and he starts to pray. Because he knows he's weak, and he wants the Father's help and sustenance in this time. And he comes back to the disciples a little while later, and he says, verse 40, It came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. So he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He then goes away. He prays again. He comes back. The disciples are sleeping. Jesus doesn't even bother to wake him up. He goes and prays again. He comes back. And this time he wakes him up and he says, it's time to go. Because he had given them the key to overcoming this weakness. It was pray hard. But what did the disciples do? Well, they had full stomach from the last summer. They just wa- last supper. They had just walked a mile. They're probably tired. It's dark outside, and they fell asleep. Now, my wife knows all about people falling asleep on her, okay? Or at least one person falling asleep on her. I'm sure she understands how Jesus felt in that moment. It's just kind of deflating when you were hoping to have people who would stand with you, stand by you. And they can't do it. The disciples couldn't do it because they were depending on themselves, not on the strength of the Lord in that moment. And when they ought to have been praying so that they could be strong, they were sleeping and getting their physical strength, and they missed it. And so their ministry to the Lord was probably discouraging rather than encouraging and helpful. A fourth mistake that the disciples made when they tried to do life in their own strength was, especially Peter here, they ended up fighting for the wrong things. And I would add to this, in the wrong ways. They fought for the wrong things, and they also fought in the wrong ways. If you look in verse 47, it says, While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And, and so here comes Judas invading the garden with this armed cohort, and, and Peter has a sword with him. What's he do? If you remember the story, he's like, not, you're not taking my Jesus, right? Because remember, he made a pretty arrogant promise. I will die with you. And that seems like Peter was saying, I'm going to stick to that. I'm going to fight. And he swings the sword to cut off Malchus's head, which is the servant of the high priest. I think he went for the guy who didn't have a whole lot of pushback or something like that. Malchus ducks and cuts off his ear. Jesus heals the ear and he says to Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword away. Verse 52. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Don't you think I can appeal to my father? He will at once send more than 12 legions, which is 72,000 angels. And how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? When we try to fight the spiritual battles that we need to fight as Christians, but we try to do so in a physical way, we make a huge mess. We get ourselves way ahead of Christ in this. And he's like, step back, Peter. You have no idea what's going on. First of all, the scriptures have to be fulfilled. There's bigger things going on here than you can understand. The second thing is, I could call for help if I wanted. And if one angel in the Old Testament could kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, what do you think 72,000 angelic soldiers could do? That's an overwhelming power. He could overwhelm them if he wanted, but there's something bigger going on. And besides, Peter, the surest way to die is to start fighting these physical battles. I think of a pastor, a friend of mine, who ended up fighting the wrong battles because he was out on a jog and he came back and he's pretty young and he's pretty tough and he looked out the window of the church after getting back and he noticed there was somebody out there peeing on the church bus tire. And he walked out the door. He's like, hey, what are you doing? Right? And he literally beat the guy up across the parking lot. And his pastor had some words, like Jesus had some words for Peter. What are you doing? 
Have you forgotten what we're fighting for? It's not for tires that are clean. We are fighting for the souls of people. And that's what Jesus is fighting for. Peter, in his self-confidence, missed the battle altogether. He totally misunderstood what the fight was for. And he's fighting for the wrong things and he's fighting in the wrong ways. And so, we're not surprised when we get to verse 69. Peter's in the courtyard and he denies Jesus once. He denies Jesus twice. He denies with a curse the third time. He denies Jesus. And we have these times too where we ought to be standing up for Jesus and instead we keep our mouths shut. Or we act like we're not Christians. Or we specifically say, well, you know, that, that, that church thing, that, you know, it's just, that's just my church, you know. We make excuses for what we believe. We get weak need. And when we ought to be standing strong, we collapse. And the thought that we had that we would be so strong for Christ in the moment of crisis ends up in our moment of greatest regret. Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. Have you ever heard somebody weep bitterly? That's hard to listen to. When I was a teen, we went to a church in Pennsylvania, and a guy, after the message, responding to the invitation, literally came running down the aisle. I'm guessing he was in his early 60s, and he literally threw himself in grief on the platform. He heard this thump, and I thought, ooh. But he was sobbing. The whole church of several hundred people is singing, and you could hear him over everybody's voices because he was so torn up over his failures in service to the Lord. That's Peter. The regret that overcame him was immense. Now, that was these are several of the mistakes that Peter made in his confidence and the sins that he committed in his self-confidence. And that's a really sad place to be. But you know what? This is where we begin to see a turn. And the turn happens because Peter comes to realize that Jesus not only died, but he rose, and he is a forgiving God, and later on he is going to be restored. See, this is a sad place to be, but it's not a place where you have to stay. And if you look at your life and you say, you know, the things I've done for God have been largely in my own strength. And it's produced the same kind of results that Peter and the other disciples produced. This prayerlessness, this misunderstanding of Jesus, these arrogant promises that I never can seem to follow through on, this fighting the wrong battles in the wrong way, and ultimately I denied Jesus when I really wanted to stand up for Him. If you look at your life and you realize your life is full of a lot of regret as well, or at least some regret, that's a good place to be, but it's not a good place to stay. And the way that you can get off of that point is by coming to the God who is full of grace and willing to forgive. Would you read this verse with, these verses with me? Psalm 103, 3 and 4 say, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who is willing to forgive when we, in our self-confidence, totally blow it? When we, in our religiosity, try to please God and we heap up our good works, He says, no, you still have sin that needs to be dealt with. And the wages of your sin is death. But that's why I sent My Son to the cross. And you come to Jesus who has paid the penalty for your sin, and you ask Him, God, forgive me for what I have done wrong. I cannot impress you, and I cannot please you in my own strength. Forgive me, please. And He washes that sin away, and you become white as snow. And that is the beauty of the Gospel, because then your guilt is gone, and your shame can be no more, and you can stand up and you can walk again in a new way of life. 
That is the beautiful thing. And that is transformational. And you start to see the disciples as they get a hold mentally and emotionally of of what Jesus has done and then really are restored, they begin to do ministry in a whole new way and to follow God with, with a new kind of strength. And this is what I want to compel you and and encourage you with. That the Holy Spirit comes into us as we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And He enables us to be transformed into effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. Our service for God becomes effective when we cease trying to do it in our own strength and we simply trust the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God And then the Spirit's filling to do what God sent us to do. So I want to talk to you about how he does that with the disciples, because there are great truths for us to learn here. Uh, Flip forward to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, Jesus has been raised from the dead. However, you're not seeing a whole lot of transformation in the disciples yet. So in John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, here's a key, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. What are the the, uh, disciples doing? They're playing hide and seek. It's like sardines, right? Except for they're behind a locked door, and that's against the rules in sardines. (laughs) They had previously dressed up as soldiers to be with Jesus. And now the true fear comes out again and they're hiding in a locked room upstairs, not fully realizing what God has for them and the future that's ahead. So they're behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And then here's a beautiful thing. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When the door's locked and somebody shows up in the room anyway, you're glad they come in peace. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What's Jesus do with the disciples at this point? He says, Well, fellas, here's your marching orders. I know you're locked in a room right now because you're freaking out, but i got a job for you. I'm sending you out. Now, if you had been one of the disciples, what would you be thinking? Because the question I would be thinking would be, who, me? Yep, yep, you. I'm sending you out. Flip over a page or two to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he gives the commission, and this is what Jesus does for them. He gives them a commission, a mission that they are to go work on it's in acts chapter 1 verse 8 he says but you will receive power when the holy spirit come has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and all judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth what does he commission them to do i heard it say it a little louder go right go and speak it's time to go you can't stay here anymore guys Hiding out in your bunker is not the way that my disciples live. It's time for you to go. At this point, they cease being disciples, and at the the ascension, they become apostles. Apostles means one who is sent. And so they get sent out. Jesus commissions them to go speak to the world of him. These same guys that were playing sardines in the upper room. Has God given us the same challenge, the same commission? Are we soldiers of the cross? What kind of soldiers are we? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, We are ambassadors for Christ, as if God were making an appeal through us to the world to be reconciled to God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, the things you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And by men, he doesn't mean men. He means people. That's the general word for men and women. 
Okay, so this isn't a commission only for pastors. Your job can be accomplished as you invite people to church. But it's more than that because our job and our goal as pastors is to compel and encourage and equip you to be able to go teach to others who will be able to teach others also. There's this, there's this momentum that ought to be building as you get what God has done in your life and you pass that on to others. This is the commission God's given to us. And, and the question is, do you have pretty feet? Because Romans 10 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news are you in on the commission have you heard it are you following as the disciples did because they did get up and go once you get the commission then you have to ask the next question how in the world am i going to do this because if you if if you start thinking about how hard this might be it could be pretty overwhelming. Okay? By a show of hands, how many of you would say, I am not very confident when it comes to sharing the gospel and talking to people about my faith? Okay? I talked to a, a pastor. Uh, he was actually the seminary president, um, and he would consider himself to have the gift of evangelism. His name was Howard Bixby. And, and I said, this is after... 20-some years of teaching, this is after 20-plus years of pastoring, I said, Dr. Bixby, when do you stop being nervous about sharing your faith? And he goes, well, I do consider myself to have the gift of evangelism, but I always get nervous every time I try to talk to somebody about the gospel. I was like, it's hopeless then. I'll never be able to get past the nerves. So how am I going to do what God's called me to do if I'm always going to have the nerves? If I'm always going to feel queasy? And the butterflies are there. This is where I have to depend on two things. This is where the Spirit makes all the difference. He transforms us by baptizing us into His family and then filling us to do the work of ministry. He baptizes us. He fills us. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, it says, John baptized with water, and Jesus promised that these disciples would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We'll talk a little bit more about what baptism is and filling is. Uh, but in chapter 2, uh, they then, being baptized in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, go do the work that God's called them to do. Here's the thing. By baptizing and filling, it's kind of like the pressure's off. You're not alone anymore. I want to show you how, okay? So let's, let's look at a couple of these words. There's be a lot of writing for you, but you can handle it, all right? It's one sentence. What is spirit baptism? It's God identifying himself as one with his children. So he identifies himself as one with us. And he does that by placing his spirit in his children at the point of conversion. God identifies himself with us. This is what he does with the disciples. Now, the, the nature of the book of Acts is transitional. But as you look in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you begin to realize that when are we baptized in the Spirit? Is at the point of conversion. Okay, We're placed into the body at that point in time. And the Spirit comes upon everyone who is placed into the body of Christ. So he identifies himself with us, so we are not alone. You're not alone. When you go out to do what God calls you to do, you are not alone. And that ought to bring you a lot of courage. Because how much better is it when you have to do something that is intimidating to you to have somebody by your side? You're not alone. God has put His Holy Spirit in you if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. So you don't have to worry that you're not going to be able to handle it because God will, um, God will be there with you all of the time. The second key thing is that He doesn't just stop and say, hey, I'm with you. He actually fills you with His strength to go do it, to do what He's called you to do. Spirit filling is God's power 
filling his children so that they will do two things. Mature in their faith and not be spiritual babies forever. And the second is to accomplish their God-given mission. So we know it's clear what the mission of God is. Go and make disciples. Speak. But, 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 I'm not so good at that. Don't you remember? Jesus, we were just hiding. Do you remember the mess I made before, Peter might say? But it's okay, Peter. I'll fill you with my spirit, and you'll be able to do what you had not yet been able to do. Spirit filling is always done so that we will grow closer to Christ and be able to more effectively serve Christ in what he's called us to do, and that's to speak. That's primarily to speak. There are other ways in which you can serve the Lord, but it is primarily about speaking. And whereas spirit baptism is a one-time event that happens at the point of conversion, spirit filling ought to be a daily experience as the Lord fills us to do what He calls us to do, to obey Him and to speak of Him. And if you are putting yourself in the right place, renewing your mind like we talked about in Romans chapter 3, and humbling yourself and saying, God, I'm not, there's not enough of me to do what You've called me to do, but help me because I want to. He'll fill you. He'll enable you to go do what you don't have the power and the natural ability and the strength to do in and of yourself. And I take a lot of confidence from that, and I hope you do as well, because it's really easy for us to say, but I can't. I've never been good at that. I can't try that. I don't want to try that, which really is probably more of the issue. We don't want to fail. And I don't want to fail either. But how will we learn and how will God use us if we never put ourselves out there? Last week, Pastor Steve shared with us, it was a, it was a call to come fishing with the disciples. And he talked about different kinds of ministry, different, different challenges about ministry. But ultimately, it's, it's very fulfilling. When you put yourself out there and you say, God, fill me with the power to do what you want me to do. And I say this uh, not to. Um, uh, I say this because I'm really proud of my dad. And I had it modeled for me as he left licensed plumbing to become a missionary to Zambia. Now he had faithfully tried to serve in his local church, but God made it really clear it was time for us to go to Zambia. Like a very specific answer to prayer. And he said, "Okay, I'll leave the plumbing." And he's not looked back. And God has filled him and enabled him to do what they're doing. And now I love what they're doing because they're, uh, they just keep writing story after story. They just got to take the gospel, the Jesus video, into a new village in Zambia. Uh, and, and they're going to be following that up with a number of other gospel initiatives, teaching them. And what's God doing? He's using very weak and inadequate people who didn't have the paper qualifications to say they could do it. And, and look what God's doing. People are getting saved. And the gospel's advancing into literally demon-controlled territory. The witch doctors is the primary religious teaching out there. And God's advancing his gospel through weak and simple people who said, I will, Lord. Fill me with the strength adequate to accomplish the task that you've called me to do. And I love that. And I'm so proud of them for doing it. And I'm compelled to action as well because it can really default to it's really about my comfort. I really like it here in the States. I really like it in Crawfordsville. But it's not about me, is it? When we pray for boldness, like Paul did in Ephesians chapter 6, God gives us the courage he empowers us to courageously and persistently speak up for Him. This is where in Acts chapter 4, you see the biggest difference. 
the Holy Spirit empowered them to courageously and persistently speak of him. Now in Acts chapter 2, I just have to recount this so you get the, the whole flow of the story. Acts chapter 2, they speak in known languages to thousands of people. And people are like, what in the world is going on? I'm not from around here, but I can hear them speak in my mother tongue. And that was the Spirit's work. Peter then seizes on the questions as an opportunity because the Spirit fills him to speak and he speaks the gospel and 3,000 people get saved and the church is born and it's a beautiful thing. A few days later, a few weeks later, sometime later, they go into the temple and there's a lame man sitting there. He's over 40 years old and Peter looks at him and says, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you now in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And he gets up and he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God and this crowd is drawn again and Peter preaches the gospel again and it says at the beginning of chapter 4 that the number of souls became up to 5,000 people. So two more thousand people get saved. And this is incredible what's going on. And so to stop the incredibleness from happening, the religious leaders in chapter 4 arrest Peter and John for the night. And the next morning at the council, they come in, Acts chapter 4, and when, verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? And Peter's like, well, thank you very much. I couldn't have gotten a wider door. I'm walking through it. And he, notice what it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit to speak the gospel yet again, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And this is one of the best gospel verses in the entire Bible. And there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Isn't that a radical change? hiding in the upper room, weeping bitterly, to now speaking boldly for Jesus Christ. Do you believe that God could bring that same kind of transformation in you? Let me ask again. Do you believe that God could bring that same kind of radical transformation in you? I just can't get over the change in Peter's life. And neither could the religious leaders. Because verse 13 says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. When you say, God, I know what you've called me to do and you've given me the mission and I'm not going to be a soldier who's MIA. And you commit to doing what you can to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether that be speaking or whether that be working in a way that spreads the word, He fills you with power to do what you would not have been able to do in your own strength. And people see Jesus in you. Through your character and through your words, they see Christ. Now notice the Holy Spirit's not all about Himself because it was the Holy Spirit that filled them with the boldness so that people could see Jesus. And so we don't, wanna, we don't want to get things out of order here but recognize that the whole goal is that people will see and worship Jesus Christ. And the Spirit will fill you with the power to live and to speak in such a way that people see Jesus in you if you will simply say, okay, Lord, to the best of my ability, today is going to be all about what you've called me to do, what you've put me here to do. And whether no one gets saved or whether the entire town of Crawfordsville and the county of Montgomery gets saved, I'm going to be the kind of soldier who's faithful to what you've called me to do.
I'm going to serve. I'm going to greet. I'm going to teach. I'm going to help. I'm going to get up here and sing. I'm going to do what I can so that the gospel is proclaimed. I'm going to talk to my neighbors. I'm going to at least plant seeds of the gospel where I have opportunity. I'm going to be respectful to my employers. I'm going to do whatever I can so that the gospel goes forth. Because this is what God's left us here to do. And when we do that, when we commit to that, He empowers us. It's His strength. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. So let's not be hiding and saying, woe is us. Pity us. Let's be full of courage and go. Just this last week, I was watching a, um, a film, uh, a movie. Film, where'd that come from? Um, I was watching a movie called Tortured for Christ. Uh, if you have an Amazon Prime subscription, it's free and you could watch it. Um, it's, it's the story of Richard, and I'll, I'll mispronounce his name. It looks like Wormbrand, but it's German, and so it's probably Wormbrand, all right? Something like that. And, um, and so uh, Richard is the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. And he was a pastor in Romania right before the communists came in and took over. And when they came in and took over, the church had to go underground. And he was, uh, he's pastoring, and despite the difficulty, working hard to share the gospel with Russian soldiers. He spoke Russian, and so he was able to share the gospel with Russians. Those who came in and those who would imprison him if he got caught, he's sharing the hope of Jesus with. It's something they had never heard. He has to be very careful how he does it. In the process, a Russian soldier named Peter gets saved. So Peter the Russian is committed to following the Lord. Despite the risk, he gets baptized because there's spies everywhere, always reporting to the communists. He gets baptized, and he commits to taking Bibles back into Russia. And so he's being a Bible smuggler. And in the movie, there's only like a four-minute segment about Peter. But here's how, here's how the, uh, the story goes. They're at the train station, and Richard is, Pastor Richard is giving Bibles to Peter in this, in this bag, and he's supposed to smuggle them into Russia. He goes and he gets on the train, and you find out that he gets arrested and sent off to prison. Perhaps it was this Peter... Uh, because they do include some pictures at the end of the video. But as Richard is talking with him prior to him getting onto the train, he says, be very careful. Peter's answer is, were my life my own, I would have quit already. But we all belong to Christ, do we not? And you have taught us yourself, Pastor. Led by example. So off he goes onto the train where he's arrested and sent to prison. As Richard walks away from the train station, not knowing what's going to become of Peter, he says, whether he's already in heaven or continuing the good fight on earth, I do not know. But Peter had courageously served, and we had learned a new lesson. It's this. Every soul, one for Christ, must also be made a soul winner no matter the cost. Every soul, one for Christ, must also be made a soul winner, no matter the cost. How in the world could he make that statement? How in the world could he live that out? That's a spirit-filled statement that says it doesn't matter the intensity of the persecution. I will obey my Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same question for us. Will we obey? Because if we will commit to obeying, and if we will daily, in, in dependence on the Lord, ask for the strength to do it, He'll give us the courage and the boldness to do it. You're not alone. Let's go be about the work of ministry. Now maybe you've looked at your life and you say, I, I just, I don't think I've ever been a Christian, I've always tried to do stuff for God. Well, this would be a great time for you to humble yourself and to come to the God who will forgive and to depend on Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and not your own good works.
And we would love to talk to you about that if you've got questions. But it's really just about putting your trust in Christ. If you've already put your trust in Christ, but you're looking at your life and you're saying, I have room to grow. I need to depend on the Lord more. Because He's called me, He's commissioned me for work, and it's time for me to get engaged. And here's a couple of things that you might be uh, that you might follow through on. First off would be to confess any self-confidence and self-sufficiency that keeps you on the ministry sidelines saying, I could never do that. Second thing would be a prayer of submission to God saying, God, make clear what you want me to do. And then the second, or third, another thing would be look for opportunities to just plant some gospel seeds. Look for a ministry that you can get involved in so that the gospel can advance. And it doesn't only happen through our church, but certainly we want it to be happening through our church. How can you advance the gospel? What can you be involved in? Because sitting on the sidelines is not an option. One of the things that uh, you may say is, I would like to, I have no idea where to start. And as I began thinking about this, one of my commitments would be that later on this year in, on, in one of the essentials classes, we'll do something to help equip you and give you the courage to go share the gospel with people. And so look for one of those essentials classes coming up later this year and join that. The last thing I would say is some of you are already serving and you're doing well, but don't rest on your laurels. Because we don't look backwards in service to the cross. With our eyes on Him, we pursue Him with, with faith that He will enable us to do what He's called us to do. And there's going to be new opportunities ahead. So rather than resting on our laurels, we attempt great things for God. And we pray for the strength and the boldness to match what He's called us to do. There are several different ways. Maybe God's put something else on your heart for how he wants you to respond. But this is the challenge. And oh, that we would be faithful. As our men come, we're going to give to the Lord in our offering. And I'm going to lead us in prayer. And then we'll just have, I'll, I'll pray a brief prayer and I'll give you an opportunity to respond in prayer as well. And then our men will give all right, pass the plates and you have an opportunity to give thanks. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the power of your spirit and help us to never underestimate what you can do through weak and simple people like us. Thank you, Father, that you work through simple people like us. And I pray that you would do so more, that your name would be glorified, and it would be all to the glory of Jesus Christ. We give to you now with hearts full of thanks and pray that you would keep working in us in Jesus' name. Amen.